Good morning. I just want to make one more announcement very quickly before uh, we dig into this text. Starting January 5th, as we shift to the new service times, I also want you to be aware, for all parents of children, 5th grade and under, children are going to be invited to go directly to the kids' class. If you don't want to do that, that's fine. You're welcome to still bring them in here for worship. Absolutely. But then a parent will need to walk them over to the kids' area so that they can be checked in. All children are going to be checked in starting January 5th. And so they'll be welcome to come before the service. Just want to make sure all our parents know that. If you don't receive the parent email, uh, I'd ask you to go ahead and email me. You can see my email address there in the bulletin. It's jacob at coltsneckchurch.com. Just send me your name and that you want to be added to the parent list so I can make sure that you received that. Now this morning we're going to be digging into a passage that is incredibly well known. I mean, this is a passage that probably almost every Christmas you've heard read or you've heard talked about. Uh, you may have heard it on Charlie Brown. Um, this is an incredibly well-known passage. And it's a passage that really is on the very night of the birth of Jesus, which is the hinge for all of human history. So many stories have been told about this night. Movies have been made. Songs have been sung. And, and, and really the truth is, right, Christmas songs kind of conflict here. There's a song that's called Silent Night, but then there's also a song called Little Drummer Boy. Um, I've heard that Little Drummer Boy is the least favorite Christmas song of some people, and I'm not going to name any names, but uh, you know who you are, David Walsh. <laughs> I, I'm kidding. Silent Night uh, obviously is dubious because a baby is being born, and then right after a drummer boy shows up, and the drummer boy says, shall I play for you? But the next line, he's playing. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but after my wife delivered a baby, I don't think she wanted a drummer showing up to play. The truth is that as our pastor has often said over the past few weeks, Christmas is a time that we place on a pedestal. We put it up here. We've got it up here. These expectations, this idea of what it should be, that it ought to bring us great joy, that it ought to bring us peace. And yet, Rarely, it seems, does the season actually live up to these expectations. Unfortunately, far too often our minds are moved from joy and peace to a state of stress, perhaps even despair. Whether it's the pressures of the world during this time of year, the pressure to, um, to be at every single event, to do everything, the financial stress of trying to buy gifts for everyone, just the craziness of the season, perhaps even the reminder of loss that Christmas brings with it. Satan, it seems, works overtime during this season to prevent you from experiencing the joy and the peace that God wants to provide. So this morning, as we look at this text, I want to back up just a little bit and start at the beginning of chapter 2. So if you'd look back to the text with me and read on here in Scripture, verse 1 through 5 of chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Today we're going to mostly spend our time looking at how God blesses and uses the insignificant, the least of these, but even here I think it's important to point out that God uses even the greatest on earth to accomplish his purposes. You see, Caesar Augustus was the ruler of the empire. 
And often in the Old Testament, we see great examples of kings being used by God to accomplish the purpose and the will of God. Whether it was nations being directed to overtake Israel because of their rebellion, or Nebuchadnezzar being humbled so that he would exalt God. Perhaps the greatest example of this is King Cyrus. When the Israelites were sent into exile, when King Cyrus came to power, Scripture says that he was stirred by the Spirit of God. And so he decided that he would send back the Israelites. In the book of Isaiah, God says this about King Cyrus. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. You see, just as Cyrus did not know God but was used by God, it's the same thing happening here with Caesar Augustus. He declares this decree just going about his business, and yet it's this decree that sends Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. I mean, I wonder if Mary and Joseph even understood what was happening here. Did they think back to this prophecy in the book of Micah and think, God, now I see it. Now I see what you were up to. Now I see what you're working at. This is how we're going to get to Bethlehem. I mean, Scripture doesn't tell us, but we do know that Luke clearly sees the significance of all of this. I mean, he's pointing out to us in these first five verses that this is the Messiah who is going to fulfill the promise to David. He's of the lineage in the house of David, that there will be a king who will reign forever, that this king will be born in Bethlehem. And so look with me now at verses 6 and 7. And while they were there, the, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Here it is. Here it is. This is the big moment. This is the moment on which all of history hangs. This is the moment on which all of our hope and our joy is wrapped up in as Christians. This is the birth of Christ. And without the birth of Christ... There is no life of Christ. There is no death of Christ. There is no resurrection of Christ. This is the moment. And yet this beginning seems so mundane. Perhaps even humiliating. Jesus, the one who is both fully God and fully man, the almighty, eternal king, is born and laid into a feeding trough for animals. You see, as we wrestle with stress, as we uh, wrestle even perhaps with despair during this Christmas season, let us fix our eyes on this scene, on this manger in which Jesus was laid some 2,000 years ago. Even for Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, there is no room in the end. This isn't supposed to be what happens here. God subverts our expectations. A king ought to be glorified. A king ought to be exalted. A king should be born with the very best. And yet here is Jesus, the eternal king, born in a manger. Luke, the author of this book, emphasizes that whereas our expectations would be that the king would come in glory and in might, the eternal almighty king comes humbly without wealth or power. You see, I like to try to provide some key points. So if you like taking notes, here is kind of the first point this morning. God's kingdom is the opposite of man's kingdom God's kingdom is the opposite of man's kingdom while man would elevate those with strength and power and status God proclaims that it is those who are weak who will be strong that it is those who are poor who will be rich 
that it is those who are last that will be first. God's kingdom is opposite man's kingdom. Hold your place here in Luke 2 and turn with me, if you would, back just a couple of books to the book of Matthew, to the book of Matthew. It's the first book of the New Testament, so uh, if you hit the Minor Prophets with the weird names like Habakkuk and Zephaniah, you've gone too far. Matthew is where you need to be. Matthew chapter 20. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 25, Jesus is explaining this to his disciples. It says, But Jesus called to them and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, it's very clear. God's kingdom is the opposite of man's kingdom. And it's unfortunate how often we fail to see this very clear, simple principle of Scripture. I believe it's when we miss this point that we allow Satan to begin his work, that he begins to rob us of the joy and the peace that God offers, that God provides. You see, men would say that we ought to pursue what the world offers. Men would say that we ought to chase after the wealth and the status and the prestige of the world. And yet, how often do we allow that pursuit to rob us of the joy and the peace? As a follower of Christ, your responsibility isn't to attain some lofty status or title. As a follower of Christ, your responsibility is not to be wealthy so that you can enjoy what the world has to offer. Your purpose isn't to be great so that the world will know your name. You see, as a follower of Christ, none of that is our job. The world preaches that you have to climb some ladder, achieve some mythical level of financial stability, financial comfort, pursue a legacy while others will remember your name. But here clearly this morning, God requires none of that. You don't have to be financially stable to experience peace. You don't have to have a healthy family. You don't have to be married. You don't have to have kids to know joy. You don't have to be climbing that ladder socially or at work or even in school to experience joy. You see, none of these things are wicked or evil on their own, but when they become our first priority, not only are they sinful, they'll destroy the good that God wants for you, the good that God has planned for your life. The point that God's kingdom is the opposite of man's kingdom sets the stage here for the rest of this passage, for the starting in verse 8. So would you look with me back at Luke chapter 2, and we're going to begin in verse 8 and read through verse 14. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. 
You see, just as Augustus was unwittingly doing the work and the will of God, and just as that echoes the Old Testament, so too does this next portion of Scripture. These shepherds echo and make us think about the Old Testament. Likely the most famous vocational shepherd of all time is King David. If you were to look at this account of him being anointed in 1 Samuel, read along with me. Samuel is sent to the sons of Jesse, and God says, I want you to go and anoint the next king. And so he goes, and here in 1 Samuel chapter 16, we see kind of this account of the way that Samuel anoints the next king. Verse 6 says, when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Eliab is the firstborn. He's the one who is going to receive the wealth. He is the man. He's got all the money. He's got the looks. He, he, he appears to be a great leader. And Samuel says, yeah, this is the guy. This must be the one. I mean, that's exactly what we do. We look and we see somebody and it's easy to imagine that they're the one that God is working in. And yet verse 7, the Lord comes back and again, this subverting of our expectations. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Do you hear God telling Samuel, Samuel, your ways aren't my ways. Your thoughts aren't my thoughts. Your expectations aren't my expectations. Samuel, I don't care what man cares about. Samuel, my ways are higher than yours. And then we read the remainder of the story in verse 8. Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Daniel, for, before Samuel. excuse me. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. You can kind of hear Jesse's thoughts here in what he says. It can't be David. I mean, David's out back keeping the sheep. He's just a young shepherd boy. Can't be this guy. Surely not him. That can't be the one that God's going to anoint and make the next king of Israel. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. You see, God is showing Samuel in the Old Testament exactly what he shows us through the birth of his son in the New Testament. God's kingdom is not like ours. God's kingdom is the opposite of man's. David was a shepherd who would become king. Here in this passage that we're reading this morning, God first reveals the greatest news ever delivered to shepherds. Which really, this is incredible because shepherds at this day and age, they were viewed incredibly lowly. They were people of, of poor repute. In fact, uh, the Mishnah, which is a written record of Jewish oral law, says this about shepherds. This was a first century text. It says, shepherds are incompetent. No one should ever feel obligated to rescue a shepherd who has fallen in a pit. And that seems a little strange, right? I mean... <laughs> What are you doing? I'm, I'm uh, just a regular person walking by a pit, I guess, would go up to that pit and let's say they heard or saw someone, they looked down, hey, what's your job? What do you do? And then if they say they're a shepherd, oh, I'm sorry, I got to leave you there. 
I'm not obligated to take you. That would be a waste of my time. Let's let the shepherd die in the pit. I mean, seriously, how low do you have to be on the societal scale that this is the way you're viewed? Jeremiah was a guy who lived in the 6th century, and he said this about shepherds during the time of Jesus' birth. To buy wool, milk, or a baby goat from a shepherd was forbidden on the assumption that it would be stolen property. I mean, if you bought something from these guys, that means they had it, which means they had to steal it first. These were the lowest of the low. Shepherds couldn't even fulfill judicial offices. They couldn't be admitted in court as witnesses. I mean, if I'm picking out somebody to tell the greatest news of all time, these aren't the guys. These aren't the people I'm going to and delivering the news to. I'm not picking out the lowest, the guys who can't be trusted, the guys of ill repute. And yet, in verse 9, an angel appears to shepherds. You see, it's the least that God chooses to reveal the greatest news. Read with me again in verse 12. Listen to this news. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. The angel here says he's got good news of great joy. The second point this morning is that joy and peace are found in God's kingdom, not man's. The angel is proclaiming the gospel here to these lowly shepherds. To those without status, without wealth, without prestige. The good news here for these shepherds wasn't that, oh, you're going to get a raise, you're going to make more money. The good news wasn't that they would have great health, or that they would have families, or that suddenly they would be respected. The good news was that a Savior was born for them. The good news is that a Savior is born for us. And the good news is good news of great joy. Do you want to experience the joy that God offers? Then this morning dwell on the good news that Christ's birth is for you. This Christmas, should you find yourself without wealth or status or prestige, there is good news for you. Should you find yourself surrounded by family members who don't love Jesus, still there is good news of great joy for you, should you find yourself facing a significant challenge or trial in your life, there is good news of great joy. Even this morning, should you find yourself grieving the loss of a loved one this year, still for you, there is good news of great joy. Perhaps most importantly of all, this morning, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you have not trusted in him as your savior, if you have not submitted to him as Lord, there is good news of great joy for you. Jesus came and took this lowly state because he loves you and he wants you to know God as a father who loves you and would do anything to rescue you. The good news of great joy is that God is pursuing you. God loves you. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter how young or old you are. God loves you. And he sent his son to prove it. What a joy we should find in Christmas. Church, let us celebrate this good news of great joy that despite any earthly circumstance we may be experiencing this morning, Christ the Savior was born for us, for me, for you. Perhaps this morning your struggle isn't a lack of joy. Maybe it's that you struggle with a lack of peace. I mean, no question, Christmas is a prime season for destroying our peace. It's busy, it's crazy, it's hectic. 
But can I submit to you exactly what the angels say in verse 14? Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. Peace is for those who have accepted Christ. Peace is found when God is glorified. Look, our peace is destroyed when we elevate others, or we elevate items above Christ. That's when Satan has opportunity to move in because we have exalted something else into a place that it doesn't deserve. Turn your focus on God, elevate him, magnify him, make his name great. Give him the glory that only he deserves. He is a worthy God. He is a good God. He is an incredible God that deserves all glory and all honor. And when we do that, when we're able to focus and turn our eyes on him, we don't have to let the worries and the cares and the anxieties and the stress of this life burden us. Those burdens are not ours to carry. It's in his hands. And we serve a good father who brings peace to his children. An often quoted verse lays this out so clearly. Philippians 4, 6 through 9 says this. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Ultimately, the truth is that peace apart from God is temporary. It won't last. You see, peace that lasts eternally only comes from the knowledge that we serve a God who loves us. That we serve a God who is sovereign and in control of all things. That we serve a God who has the best in store for us. When we can't understand that, when we can't believe that, when we don't see that, how can we possibly experience peace? Just to bring it all into clarity, hear this again. Joy and peace are found in God's kingdom, not man's. These points, re- excuse me. These points really tie together, right? The kingdom of man says joy and peace can be found in things here on earth. The kingdom of man says keep trying. You may not have reached it yet, but if you just get a little bit more money, you'll be peaceful. You'll have that stability that you've always sought after. Just keep trying. Well, if you, just, if, if you just figured out some way to be a little better, you know, your relationship with your spouse would be fixed or your relationship with your children would be better. If you just be a little better, you could have the health that you've always wanted. And the world just keeps throwing something at us saying, just try a little harder. If you really want peace, if you really want wor- uh, joy, just try a little harder. The philosopher Blaise Pascal says that we have a God-shaped hole in our heart. Only the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself, can deliver true, eternal, lasting joy and peace. It's what the angels were declaring to the shepherds on that night so many years ago. They were saying peace and joy are found in our Savior. Look back at this passage with me. Let's see how the shepherds respond. What is their response to this incredible message? In verse 15, When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. 
And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. The final verses of this passage here show us several different responses from these shepherds. First, upon hearing the good news of great joy, it says that they went with haste. Again, church, if, if there are people here this morning who don't know Christ, I, I want to say this to you clearly. Don't delay. Go with haste. Do what these shepherds did. Perhaps some of you know the story of the city of Pompeii. It was a great city during the ancient Roman era. It was wealthy and affluent. A lot of wealth built up in that city. About 12,000 people lived there. And the historian, Pliny the Younger, during 79 AD, records this story that he saw from across the bay. This great, wealthy, affluent city was located only about five miles from an extremely volatile volcano, Mount Vesuvius. And Pliny saw the volcano erupt. And he wrote down, there was time, plenty of time for the Pompeians to flee. And yet, unfortunately, at this time, over 2,000 Pompeians died because they didn't flee. They delayed. Incredibly, in the ruins of Pompeii, as the lava engulfed, you can see still the remaining impressions of the people. And one of the impressions left is of a woman standing there holding her jewels, holding her jewelry that she had attained. Church, she was looking out for the things of this world, for the kingdom of man. And she delayed, she stayed to try and gather what she had earned here on earth. The message of this story is clearly, don't delay. Delay can be catastrophic if we turn back and we look at what the kingdom of man offers instead of going with haste to the Christ. It can be catastrophic. Please do what the shepherds did here on this night. Christ is a far greater worth than anything the world can offer. The beauty and the majesty and the glory of Christ is much better than the greatest riches of this world. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul says it like this. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Make haste. Make haste. Go to him. Go to Christ. Not only here do they make haste, but then their next response is that when they see the Savior, when they come into contact and have this encounter, they immediately tell others. I mean, what an incredible encounter it must have been. We do this, right? When we see a celebrity or a famous person, we try and make sure we get the selfie with them so that we can post it on Facebook or, or let other people know, send it to somebody so that they can know how cool it was that we met somebody. What could be better than the Savior of the world? We've been sitting under some incredible messages from Pastor Chris that have encouraged us to look with fresh eyes upon this Christmas story. And I hope your heart has been stirred with affection for God, that you love him more because of what we have been learning. You see, I believe that as your love for Christ grows, so too does your desire to share that love with others. This morning, let your thoughts dwell deeply on the Almighty God coming, becoming a baby so that he may dwell with us so that we could be saved from our sin. 
You see, this message, unfortunately, we allow it to become ordinary because sometimes we've heard it all of our life, but this is no ordinary message. It's incredible. It should be a message that lives on the lips of the people of God so that we can always be seeking out an opportunity to tell the world of what God has done for us. The shepherds can't contain it. We shouldn't either. Finally, look at verse 20, the last verse this morning. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Here's the final point. The kingdom of God is for the glory of God and man's joy and peace. This good news that brought great joy is experienced when we fulfill our responsibility to glorify and praise God. You see, when the shepherds met Jesus, what else were they supposed to do? How else could they have responded or reacted? They had to glorify and praise God. Here, the kingdom of man proclaims loudly, seek out your own good. Do whatever makes you feel good. Follow your heart. That's what the kingdom of man says. But that's not what Jesus proclaims. That's not what the kingdom of God proclaims. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 to 33, Jesus says, Therefore, do not be anxious. Again, don't experience the stress of this world. Saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Don't follow your heart. It's terrible advice. Don't do whatever makes you feel good. Seek first the kingdom of God. Charles Spurgeon said this. May it never be said of any of us. Well, he may be somewhat a Christian, but he is far more clever at attaining money. I would not have it said, well, he may be a believer in Christ, but he is a good deal more a politician. Perhaps he is a Christian, but he is most at home when he is talking about science or farming or engineering, horses, mining or navigation or sport. No, no, we will never know the fullness of the joy that Jesus brings to the soul unless under the power of the Holy Spirit, we take the Lord, our master, to be our all in all and make him the fountain of our delight. Then we will know the joy the angel song predicts for people. Church, we were created for God's glory. And it's in seeking out that glory, seeking his glory, that we will experience the eternal and lasting joy and peace that he so freely offers this morning, I hope you hear there is good news of great joy for you. You see, this story, this passage isn't a story of our love for God. It's not that we love God and so he sent his son to rescue us. This is a story of God's love for us. 1 John 4, 19 says, we love because he first loved us. He showed us his love through the son and the good news doesn't stop at the manger, right? The good news is that Jesus was born and then he lived a perfect life without flaw, without error, something none of us can do. He lived a life that we couldn't. No one is righteous. No, not one. And then, after living a perfect life, he died a death on the cross, taking on our sin and our shame and our guilt, bearing it all, bearing the full wrath of God on our behalf. And then three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, proving that he was the master over sin 
and over death. Church, that's the good news. That ought to bring us great joy. We should be so excited that we can have life because Christ died for us. This morning, church, I want to direct your focus to the manger. See the manger. Just as these shepherds did thousands of years ago. See the manger. See the great king lying in this lowly state. And why did he do that? He did it because he loved you. He did it because of his great love for you. You see, he glorified the father through his life. The father was willing to sacrifice his own son so that you and I could have life. There is no better news. There is no greater joy than this. This is the message of Christmas. Church, would you pray with me this morning? Father, what a privilege it is to be called your child, to be your son. Father, you are so good to us. We deserve your wrath. We deserve death. We deserve to be separated. But in your great love, you sent Jesus. You sent him into a humble state so that he came to serve, not to be served. Father, I pray that this morning that our hearts would be so stirred towards you. God, that our affection would grow towards you. God, that as we encounter you, we can't help but turn that back out to the world around us. Father, I pray that this morning here at Colts Neck Church, that our hearts would be soft. Father, that the whole world would know who you are because of Colts Neck Community Church. God, that the world would be changed because of the people here. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us more than we could ever imagine, more than we could deserve, for doing what we couldn't. God, we love you. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.